Well, we will have many guests here uh, tonight, and you might think of this as a dress rehearsal for what will happen probably early next year when you install your new pastor. And if you've never been to one of these services, I would encourage you to, to come and, and you'll, you'll be ready uh, for that day, better prepared uh, for it. Um, and if you have questions about what all that means, um, uh, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> so if you'll turn to, uh, in your Bibles to Acts uh, 22, verse 30. It's just the last verse of that uh, chapter. The reading is long, but I'm still going to invite you to stand. And if you're not able to stand for that long a time, that's fine. You don't need to stand uh, the whole time. It's, it's two whole pages in my Bible. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, may you be pleased to enlighten our eyes and to cause the water of your word to penetrate our hearts, even the hard places, we pray. Awaken within us deeper faith and love and hope, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he'd said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. 
Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill Paul before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and so he went and he entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and he said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is this that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire uh, somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. And so the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. And then he called two of of his centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius, Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them and with soldiers and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. And when they'd come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Please take your seats. South Carolina Highway 5 stretches across the northern counties of the state. It's two lanes wide, and it's divided by two yellow strips of paint as it rises and falls through the rolling hills of the Piedmont. Pulpwood trucks are as common as cars, and it is the most dangerous highway in the state. The church building where I served was right off of Highway 5, and late one December evening, I was driving to church, and Um, the building was just a a block off. And as I exited the ramp of one highway up onto Highway uh, 5 and began to climb a very steep 
hill, I could see that there were uh, lights of an approaching uh, vehicle. As I was cresting the hill, I saw that it was a truck, and its uh, lights were uh, shining right into my lane. 20 tons of steel and wood. We were approaching each other in excess of 100 miles an hour. And I couldn't believe it. I looked again, and then I made a decision, not knowing what would be the consequence of it, and pulled into the shoulder, which uh, was steeply sloped. It was only a moment later, just a couple of seconds, and I felt the backwash of this enormous vehicle uh, pass behind me. Blind spots like that are what makes Highway uh, 5 so deadly. And as the adrenaline coursed through uh, my body, it dawned on me just how close I had come to being a statistic. A moment's inattention, just another second of hesitation, it would have been fatal. Paul in our text has several close calls in the span of just a couple days. There's mob violence and there's a plot to murder him. And the events are recorded, they go back to chapter 21 and they run all the way uh, here through our text this morning. And this is the opening scenes in a play that, well, occupies the next four years of Paul's life. In those years, Paul will experience sustained uh, hardship as he is imprisoned and put on trial. And last week, we saw that Paul had uh, set his mind on going uh, to Rome by way of Jerusalem. And at every step along the way, he receives warnings from New Testament prophets that hardship and imprisonment await him. And we wonder, was Paul a fool for going to Jerusalem even after he was warned? Was he motivated by fanaticism? Where is God in all of this? Why put God, excuse me, why would God put Paul through all these close calls? Why follow Christ if this is what that means? Well, these questions arise in our hearts and minds because these are exactly the same kinds of questions we have when we experience hardships or others close to us do. We wonder, what's the point? Where is God in all of this? Now, the book of Acts is a long document. You've hung in uh, for many, many Sundays as we've worked our way through it. And sometimes Luke uh, will describe events that transpired over the course of weeks or months or even years in just a sentence or two. But he's a master storyteller, and he slows down the narrative when he wants to communicate something really important. It's his way of saying, pay attention. In these few days, we just are a couple of days in these three uh, chapters, uh, parallel Jesus' passion narrative, his suffering. This, in a sense, is Paul's passion narrative. And we're reminded that Paul, just like Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. And just like Jesus, he knew he would be put on trial and rejected, and bound. And there are several themes here, more than we can explore. There's the tension between Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews about how to relate to the Gentiles. There's how Christian mission uh, interfaces with governmental authority. There's the centrality of the resurrection. 
But I've chosen just to focus on one angle here, which is how it is that God meets us in adversity and hardship. We can learn from Paul's experience to look for God's invisible hand, uh, to expect God's comforting presence, as well as to follow Paul and to live a life well, as he does in the midst of adversity and hardship. The gospel means that we see and respond to hardship and affliction differently. And this means, first of all, we learn to look for God's invisible hand. We look for God's invisible hand. Now, let me just summarize what's happened in Acts before we uh, got here. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and the Christians uh, meet him, and they urge him to take a vow of purification. They're doing that because that'll show everybody that Paul is a loyal, observant uh, Jew, contrary to rumors about him. And when Paul enters the temple, he's immediately recognized, uh, seized, and he's accused. He's accused of being disloyal to Judaism and that he's actually defiled uh, the temple by bringing Gentiles into the part where they're forbidden. The whole city is astir uh, by this. And Paul is drug out into the streets and he's about to be killed. And the highest ranking Roman official there Uh, who's called the Tribune. He rushes out to the scene to restore order, investigates, arrests Paul. The mob was so violent that the soldiers carry Paul into their barracks. Paul is questioned, and he asks for permission uh, to speak uh, to to the crowd, to his fellow Jews. And so he tells his life story. He talks about how he was brought up in the strictest form of Judaism, educated by the most respected rabbi, persecuted the church until Jesus appeared to him. The crowd listens closely until Paul says God has sent him to the Gentiles, and they're incensed. And the Romans take him back into the barracks, and they decide to question him under torture, uh, to whip him as they ask questions. And Paul, at that moment, discloses he's a Roman citizen. He shows them probably the diploma that he carried. It was probably written on a piece of wood that was evidence that he was, in fact, a Roman uh, citizen. The, The tribune is alarmed because he's done what's forbidden by Roman law. He's put a Roman citizen uh, in chains and is about to whip him without his being found guilty. Well, the next day, the Tribune still wants to know what's going on, why this mob wants Paul dead. And so he commands the Jewish high council uh, to meet, and Paul is brought there, and he begins by saying, I have been faithful all my life to this very day uh, to be obedient to God. And Ananias commands him to be struck. Paul replies rather sharply. What he's saying is, is, You're charged with keeping the law, and here you are breaking it uh, in this assembly. And then someone points out, Paul apparently doesn't know that this man is the high priest, and he apologizes. And then Paul speaks to the assembly, and Luke tells us that he discerned there was a theological difference in the crowd. He starts this way, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead I'm on trial. And then Luke adds a note. 
uh, for us as readers, that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and they uh, didn't believe that people who died lived in some sort of disembodied state uh, either. But the Pharisees did. They believed all of this. Now, Paul is not using the resurrection cynically to divide and conquer. No, it's central to the gospel. The hope of Israel being fulfilled in Jesus rests on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What Paul is doing here is he's changing the focus of the trial, which he's been accused of being disloyal as a Jew and stirring up trouble. But when, in fact, what's at issue is a matter of theology. And uh, this uh, moving things in this way allows him to testify to Jesus, but also to persuade the Roman uh, ruler that, in fact, this is an intramural conflict in Judaism. It's a theological issue. But once again, violence breaks out, and again, the tribune sends soldiers to take Paul out of harm's way. That night, Jesus comes to Paul and speaks words of assurance and the necessity of his going uh, to Rome to testify to him. The next morning, the conspiracy uh, to murder Paul is hatched. Forty men promise that they'll neither eat or drink until he's murdered. They uh, conspire with the high council to have a pretext uh, to get Paul uh, to a place where he can be attacked. And the invisible hand of God is uh, manifesting itself right here because Paul's nephew learns about this plot. Having spoken to Paul, the Roman soldier takes this boy to the tribune. The tribune's willing to listen to him, and he actually believes the report. And he orders a group of soldiers that probably number 12 times the group that was committed to killing Paul to take him by night to the governor, Felix. Don't miss seeing the invisible hand of God in all of this. In the temple courts, as this Roman ruler reaches him in the nick of time, or again, as Paul twice more is seized uh, from a scene of violence after speaking. And finally, in this plot, uh, where 40 men are determined uh, to end Paul's life, God arranges for Paul's nephew to learn about this. God gives this nephew favor. He's given Paul favor with the centurion and then the, and then the tribune. This is God's providential ordering and ruling behind the scenes in these events. It's not luck. It's not happenstance. It's not circumstance. It's not a coincidence. No, it is God at work. Now, Paul is kept safe, but he is not comfortable. Being arrested, bound, imprisoned were not pleasant experiences. And God is working in this to have Paul testify to the rulers and kings of Rome all the way up the chain to Caesar. Now, let me ask you, in your afflictions and hardships, are you on the lookout for God's invisible hand? God never abandons those who've been reconciled to him in Christ. Sometimes we are surprised by suffering. We can easily think, well, I'm close to God, and therefore suffering shouldn't touch my life. I should get a uh, get-out-of-free-from-jail free card from the suffering jail because I am saved. Or perhaps we just expect when affliction comes 
that God will deliver us very quickly. But Paul shows us that's not true. We belong to Jesus. He's Lord. He's created and redeemed us. And so our lives belong to him. And he has the right to do with us as he thinks best. Now, adversity and hardship put this to test. Because it's easy to say that Jesus is Lord, that we're his, that he owns us, he has rights over us. And it's another when he exercises those rights, isn't it? It's another thing uh, when he allows hardship or affliction to touch our lives and we're in a situation we don't want. You may remember Paul, after being stoned uh, and left for dead at Lystra, said to the Christians there that through many tribulations we must enter uh, the kingdom of God. That's true for all of us. In his letter to the Romans, he talks about our present suffering. And he says... It comes to us in part because we live in a fallen uh, world, a world that's uh, groaning, a world that's not the way it should be. In Romans 8, he writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." You see, Paul is telling us if we're going to face affliction and hardship well, we need an eternal perspective. Our suffering, if it's weighed out on the scales, will not compare at all to the glory that waits for us. And while we wait for the hope of redemption, we groan. Some of us are groaning with our bodies, even now, and some of you are too young to fully understand and appreciate what it's like to to groan in your weakness. The writer of the Hebrews makes this same point in chapter 12 when he tells us that hardship is not a sign that God has abandoned us, but a sign that he's treating us as sons. And Peter says we shouldn't be surprised by trials. He says it this way, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. And then he counsels this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful creator while doing good. Have you learned to do that? Is it the first inclination of your heart to entrust yourself to God in the midst of trials? Now, from Paul, we should also look for and expect the comforting presence of God. Jesus comes to Paul while he's alone in a cell in a Roman fortress. He comes visibly and stood by him, and he strengthens Paul and tells him to be resolute in courage. And Paul needs these 
uh, words. The last few days have been intense and difficult, and you and I should not imagine they were anything uh, but. Having been falsely accused, beaten by a mob, chained to a Roman soldier, stretched out to be whipped, and forced to defend himself. That's a lot of difficult things to experience in under 48 hours. And Paul's able to be courageous for the next four years because he knew that Jesus Christ stood next to him. He was yoked with the Lord. This is what it means to be in union with Christ, to live in union with him. It doesn't mean that problems and difficulties and even hostility are taken from us. In fact, they may be multiplied because of our relationship with Christ. Now, if you're in comfortable circumstances and life is easy, just remember that for uh, many Christians, it's actually very difficult. And one of the things that this uh, passage should mean to us, should realize, is that this speaks to all who've been persecuted and falsely accused and are forced to deal with legal systems that are uncaring at best and cruel at worst. Now, I've lived really a privileged and comfortable life. I have never uh, been in a church when a violent mob uh, gathered around and threatened uh, our uh, ability to worship or our safety, as they sometimes do in Iraq and Egypt and in India. No state-sponsored agents have ever hauled me out of bed at night and tortured me Uh, and interrogated me because of my faith in Christ, as they do to Christians in Myanmar and North Korea. But we should be aware that brothers and sisters face this. This is their reality and ought to move us to pray that in various ways they would have courage in the midst of these circumstances. In all our affliction... We need to remember that God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He promises that our spirit will help us in our time of need. In the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul writes in Romans 8, even as we groan in our sufferings. And God comes to us, especially in the scriptures. There he will speak words of comfort. If we will still ourselves and listen The Psalms are one of the best places to go in the Bible when you're suffering. Faith trusts that God's at work in accomplishing his purposes. That Paul is confident that God is at work in his affliction to advance the cause of the gospel. And there are several purposes that I just want to mention, just touch on lightly. Whole sermons could be devoted to these. God, in the midst of our suffering, our hardship, breaks our self-confidence and pride. We live with the illusion that uh, uh, we are not uh, helpless and dependent on God. And these difficult things expose that to us. They make us face that reality. Suffering and hardship often bring out the worst in us, don't they? They show uh, how sharp our tongue is how insensitive to other people, how easily we're given to worry, a bitter spirit. And 
these times, these difficult times are God's way of helping us to see these things. And suffering can serve to, well, strengthen our loyalty to God if we let it. You may be, I certainly have been tempted to be angry when uninvited suffering has come into my uh, life. Um, But it, it exposes something in me that it's easier for me to obey when life is going my way. And there's a sense in which God says to me and perhaps uh, to you in hardship, oh, when things were all right between us, uh, when, well, when it seemed like I was waiting on you hand and foot, letting you have what you want. But now we can see whether really you are serving me regardless of the circumstances in life or you only expect me, in fact, to be your servant. And suffering makes us more compassionate. It makes us, it tenderizes our hearts and our attitudes towards other people. And we learn from Paul what it actually looks like uh, to live well in the midst of adversity and hardship. Paul is not living for his comfort or his security. That's really very countercultural for us. He's fixed on God's purposes. Now, admittedly, God's purposes for his life are unique. None of us uh, plays his role in uh, God's uh, unfolding his kingdom in the history of the world. Our lives are mostly fairly ordinary. But in the ordinary things God has given us uh, to do, family, work, uh, marriage, uh, being neighbors, we need to be clear about life's purposes. We need to trust that God's at work in good, even though it seems to us at times as if, well, this suffering is going to ruin God's purpose in this area of my life. Paul, in fact, looks for ways uh, to take his difficulties to testify to Jesus. And perhaps you have known, I certainly have known as a pastor, many dear Christians who in the midst of cancer, terminal illness, the the betrayal of a spouse, the loss of a job, have turned people from looking at their troubles to pointing to Jesus Christ and confessing uh, the goodness and grace of God that's met them. Time and again, we see Paul looking for ways to draw people's attention to Jesus As you face adversity, you face it with faith, trusting that God's with you, that he's ordering this uh, for good. He has his purposes in it. For hope that this hardship is temporary and something far better and greater awaits us. And love, because as you suffer, don't give in to the temptation to draw into yourself, to become preoccupied, self-absorbed, engaging in self-pity. Seek to love others as well as you can. There's no doubt Paul's suffering was very, very great. And it made sense to him because Jesus was afflicted for him and for us. Jesus was arrested without cause. He was unjustly condemned in court and in part as a political expedient. He was afflicted. He was mocked. He was beaten, 
He was humiliated by having his clothes taken from him. He was whipped and then subjected to the worst form of execution the Romans could imagine. He did this for Paul, and he did it for everyone who puts their trust in him. He did it so that we would not experience the affliction that is due to us for our sin and rebellion. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done, and we see Jesus in what Paul uh, did and how he responded to affliction and hardship. And we ask that you would uh, meet us afresh and grant, Lord, as we approach this table, that, Lord, you'd pour out grace to us. Father, around us, I know there are many people suffering. There are people in this uh, room, uh, some of whom we're very close to, who are struggling, who have things unwanted in their lives. And Father, we pray for them and us that we'd be strengthened as we come to this table, assured that our Savior who's suffered for us will never leave us or forsake us. May he comfort us in these moments, we pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.